Ha, ha, ha. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Stuttering Foundation podcast. This is Sarah McIntyre recording from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And I'm welcomed by Vivian Siskin joining us again for part two of our arts series. So again, just as a recap for the kickoff of season six, we decided to do something special and we are offering four mini episodes in January, releasing beginning January 9th. So if you haven't listened to the first episode, please go ahead and go back and listen to the essence of arts. It will provide a nice foundation and theory and a backdrop for our continued conversations this month. There will be four four mini episodes. So this is episode two. Next Tuesday will be three and the following last Tuesday of January will release four. And this series will be ongoing. It won't end at just these four episodes, but I hope you will all enjoy this special start to season six. So I am going to reread Vivian's bio and then we'll just segue right on into in to, to this part of our conversation. Vivian Siskin is a clinical professor emerita at the University of Maryland, an ASHA fellow, and a board-certified specialist in fluency disorders. She served as coordinator for ASHA's special interest group for fluency disorders, chair of ASHA's council for clinical certification in audiology and speech language pathology, and received ASHA's media champion award. Iskin served as vice chair of the American Board on Fluency and Fluency Disorders and is a faculty member for the Stuttering Foundation's Mid-Atlantic Workshop. She was named Speech-Language Pathologist of the Year by the National Stuttering Association, and she owns the Siskin Stuttering Center in the Washington, D.C. area. So we'll just be resuming our conversation here. I wonder if we can go back and talk a little bit more in, in, into depth about control and struggle. And, and how that might sound for you. Well, there's so many ideas that I can bring up in, in terms of that, but I'll talk about the person's journey in arts. How about that? And relate yeah, to that. love that. So at the beginning of the journey, yes, you do have to exert some control because there are behaviors and habits that have been learned over the years that have been helpful in allowing a person to hide stuttering to manage stuttering, to control stuttering, all of those things have led to the pattern of struggle and the unhappiness with the day-to-day communication and the fear of stuttering and certainly shame and, and embarrassment related to it. So at the beginning of the journey, there is some effort to change things. Yes, we're not just saying, oh, come to therapy and you be spontaneous and let everything go. Because if you are reverting to an escape behavior, let's say um, a, a, a interjection, my name is uh, uh, Vivian. Or if you're repeating previous words like, I, I, I'm here today with Sarah, any of those kinds of behaviors serve to hide stuttering or minimize stuttering or allow you to speak when your body was ready to. They become very strong and they're on an intermittent reinforcement schedule. So they become even stronger and they're hard to get rid of. So at the beginning, there is some direct work in getting rid of some of those behaviors. And what happens is it leads to this moment of openness and loss of control, which is the most scary part of our therapy, which we can talk about in a little while, open stuttering. But after that, when you actually are in that sort of your worst case scenario, showing the stuttering you don't want to show, of course, in selective environments, 
there comes a time where letting go of the effort to control it and fix it and make it better actually allows you to reduce reactivity and have a comfortable stuttering moment. And so that paradox is, is the difficult part. When do I control? When do I let go of control? And how do I let go of control? I just got a question in group on Saturday about, okay, I know my open stuttering is great. I got it. But it's tense and it, it lacks movement and it, it, it makes me still hate my stuttering. And the question is always, what do I do? How do you want me to stutter so that I don't stutter that way? How do I let go of that tension? Do I do tension letting go exercises? What do I do? And the notion of letting go of control at that point is very much a cognitive exercise. It's an exercise of allowing your body to adjust to that disfluency and to do less. And if I can think about doing an arts, most of what people are doing are doing less. And so, you know, the obvious response to that is you're supposed to tell people what to do, not what not to do. And so it's there. Yes, there is a little bit of a contradiction, but it's about allowing, giving permission to be out of control. Mm-hmm. The thing that most people fear about stuttering, which leads to all of the struggle, is efforts to manage the loss of control. And now we're having people experience loss of control as a target in therapy. Isn't that wild? Mm-hmm. And then that spontaneity comes as a, a more of an undoing process. Yeah, yeah. And I think in our program, spontaneity pops up in many, many ways. We, we don't do drills like you were talking about your early therapy. We work in spontaneous speech. And so we want children, adults to freely communicate spontaneously, say what they want, when they want, and allow that moment of stuttering to unfold in that moment of spontaneity. So yeah, it's, it's both how we work and also one of our outcomes, spontaneity, is actually one of the five arts outcomes, along with efficiency, comfort, confidence, and joyful communication. So I'm thinking a couple places where we could go a little bit further and maybe you could decide what feels right. I think in arts, words matter and the semantics and that intentionality piece. So maybe going into that a bit and then maybe dissecting struggle a little bit more in depth and specifically now that people have those background concepts. I'm not sure if either of those feel right for you or what do you think? Well, I, I love to talk about language. I, you know, I love to talk about both. Let's talk about everything. But um, Let's talk about let's- it all. Yeah. <laughs> I hope you have a a second coffee. No, (laughs) you know, language, the way we label things and the way we talk about things actually impacts how we think about them. And so one of the jokes of our therapy groups is I'm sort of a, a stickler about language of responsibility. And so if somebody will say, I was doing really well with getting rid of that avoidance behavior, we call them tricks in our therapy. I was really doing well getting rid of that postponement or getting rid of that retrial or getting rid of, you know, that running start. We have these wonderful names for them too, which people name their their tricks, especially the children, because it's fun to sort of attach a name of what you're doing because doing is important. And they say, oh, that trick is coming back in again. 
you know, it's like coming back into my pattern. And I go, really, is it walking in? Is it flying in? What is it doing? And so they go, all right, all right, Vivian. I'm using retrials again. I go, yeah, you are using retrials again. That's interesting because if you recognize that you are doing that, then you can do something about it. And if I know there's some difference of opinion on whether people want to look at stuttering as something that's happening to them and that they can kind of ignore it or looking at at the struggle as something that they have learned to do and they are doing and they are reinforcing. And so we do have really important words. We have some dirty words, you know, like fluency used to be a dirty word. It's not anymore. I don't think any of these are really dirty words. I used to have a, a little article that I wrote on seven letter, seven letter dirty words. But I think that I'd rather talk about disfluency than fluency. I think I'd rather talk about choice than control. I think that how people talk about their pattern can make it easier to change it rather than harder to change it. So yeah, so words are very, very important. And I think as clinicians, and you've heard me talk about this before, the words that we use with our clients can also influence their ideas of their own stuttering. And I think that it's really important not to provide double messages. Think about how we're talking about acceptance and how we're talking about what we want our clients to do. One of the biggest questions I get from speech language therapists is, what's the difference between a tool or technique or just changing the way that you're stuttering in that moment? And for me, it's the idea of doing something to fix something. And why are you doing it? And thank you, Sarah, for talking about intent, because I think it's always about intent. So if somebody says to me, hmm, So Vivian, I do this interesting thing and I'm wondering if you think it's an escape behavior or if it's natural, spontaneous, open stuttering. And so it often doesn't matter what it is. They'll say like, listen to this. My name is Vivian. What do you think? Is Is that a trick? Is that an escape? Is that open stuttering? And my response is always, well, what's your intent? And they have to think what their intent is. And usually if they say, well, the intent is because it won't get wild and crazy. So you're trying to suppress some stuttering? Yeah. Okay. Well, maybe then it is a trick. What's your intent? If my intent is to get on the sound and show as much stuttering as I can show at this particular point in my therapy, no, I think that's fine. And so things are renamed for each individual person as they move through their journey based on what their intent is. and. The funny thing in group is very often where somebody will be working on something in group and I say, everybody else close your ears because for that person, they're working on that because it follows a very healthy intent toward openness and acceptance. For somebody else, doing that might represent hiding. And an example of that, a really good example of that is the block. Okay. So... uh, the block, like what is the block? A lot of people's block is, you know, core behavior study. I don't even want to get into what core and other behaviors because we don't refer to them that way. We just look at what is it serving you as or how, what is it doing for you? But let's say somebody is showing stuttering and their stuttering pattern is full of silent blocks where they're cutting off phonation. 
and their struggle is very much silent blocks. At that point, for that person, they might want to reduce silent blocks by getting sound in and by reducing the holding back and the tension and by letting, making it wild and letting it out. And sometimes if they say, well, no, that'll sound terrible. Well, then let's make it terrible. That'll sound ugly. Let's make it ugly. That'll be, I have one client who says, that'll be curtains. All right, let the curtains fall. And, you know, I'll get you all wet. You know, and one time I literally opened my umbrella, get me wet, you know. (laughs) (laughs) So for that person, reducing the block is a good intent. Okay, Mm -hmm. we're working on that. Now take somebody who has a more covert profile and they don't show stuttering. They're very good at hiding their stuttering. They pass this fluent most of the day. And they have decided that they're going to stop word substitutions and they're going to begin to reduce those word substitutions. They're going to say the words they want to say when they want to say it. Imagine that. But what happens is as soon as they begin to say the word, the fear kicks in, the panic kicks in, the loss of control kicks in, and they freeze and they lock up their vocal fold. And now they have a block. And what am I going to say as a clinician? Great job. Celebrating that. Yeah. (laughs) So for some people, a block can be progress on their journey. For other people, the block does not represent progress on their journey. And so again, the challenges of group therapy is hearing all of these stories and having everybody trying to figure it out. And the beauty of having your own story that you're trying to unravel and figure out and hearing other people's stories that you're also trying to understand and watch them go through it, that increases the client's problem-solving skills and their understanding of the therapy principles. And when you can problem-solve for yourself on the outside, that's when your journey kind of picks up the speed, moves a little bit faster. I'm putting myself in the listener's shoes who maybe this is new to them to consider stuttering in this way, to, to, to think through intentionality in this way. I wonder if we could just do a broad zoom out of what the path in arts might look like. Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So I think the first step for people coming into therapy is to gain an understanding of what their pattern is like and how they got where they are. So being able to look at not only the way that they stutter, but the thoughts that trigger those behaviors and the feelings that might accompany those behaviors or the, or, or the, the avoidance of feelings or the avoidance of thoughts or the complexities of what is going through their mind during the day, which for many people coming into the therapy, they think that they're alone in this, that there's something wrong with them. Some people don't even know it's stuttering. They think it's some kind of communicative anxiety because they don't show the typical stuttering behavior, for example, and they spend most of their day hiding and people tell them they're not stuttering. So that experience, that validation is denied for them. So coming in, they begin to sort of explore their stuttering and figure out what's going on. And this is not a one-day thing. This is a continuous process of 
over time, you know, we, we compare it to the peeling of the onion, taking off the outside layers and eventually getting into the, the things that, you, well, maybe I'm not shy. You know, you get into the middle. Maybe that shyness is really something that I've told myself. Or you mean that tiny little pause that I just put in there is not just me thinking? I don't know. Are you thinking? Or are you pausing so that you can have the next word be fluent? So we start involved, you know, sort of discussing all of these things and exploring the pattern. We try to separate out what might be something you want to keep, something that's helpful for the journey, and something that maybe is not helpful for you, something that you might want to get rid of. And we do some sorting, and especially with children. They're going to sort in a crazy way at the beginning. All oh, those word substitutions are really helpful. Of course they are. Let's talk about why they are. And for somebody else who uses an um, that's really helpful because that allows me to hold the floor and not stutter on the next word. Yes, that's really helpful. So we want people to share their experiences and begin to build this idea of what's helpful and not helpful and begin to sort and change things the way they want to at their own pace. Once they identify something that actually helps them hide their stuttering, let I'll just pick one something. Let's say it's um, let's say it's the um because that's a big one that people use. They or even eye, loss of eye contact because, and I can talk more about loss of eye contact because I think for many many people I call it a trigger trick, in that it might have been an early one learned and others are conditioned onto it. And so sometimes if you establish eye contact during the moment of disfluency, particularly during the moment of release of the disfluency, so you can look away, but when you release that moment, having the eye contact brings you centered, looking at the person, facing your fear and reducing the trigger trick that was attached onto it when eye contact no longer helped you escape from the moment of disfluency, loss of eye contact. So they begin to start noticing that in their day, and we call that monitoring, and we have specific assignments not to reduce it. And this is what people don't, no, 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 you're not going to reduce it. You're just going to become more aware of when it occurs in the moment. And for speak language therapists out there who might be listening, I usually get the question, so would you put a student in front of a mirror, or would you record them and have them listen back? And my answer is no, I would never do that for so many reasons. But from the therapeutic perspective, not, you know, just the idea of the arts therapy, feeling yourself do it in the moment, in real time, that proprioceptive feedback you get when you do the uh right before the moment of loss of control is a moment that you have to realize and take a look at. That's an important moment. Watching it on a screen is not the same. And having somebody point it out to you is not the same. Pointing it out is not helpful. Oh, by the way, I think you use ums. That just feels like, you know, some kind of a microaggression. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not helpful. So that self-discovery is really important. And just by discovering when you do it and feeling as you do it, when you do it, through the process of a psychological principle of negative practice, the behavior starts to reduce a bit, okay? So everybody might be saying, wow, that's wonderful. We're going to reduce it. However, there's the other side of the coin 
when you reduce something that allowed you to hide a moment of stuttering, what's the other side? You're going to maybe show a moment of stuttering. So at this point of therapy, there's enormous counseling that goes on, group support for others who have experienced this. And as the person starts to feel their way through this phase of therapy that we call open stuttering, which I'll talk about a little more depth, there has to be coexisting, concurrent, supportive messages that counteract the messages that allowed people to run and hide. And they might be something like allowing yourself to feel shame, whatever the person identifies that they may feel. Or what is it, the reason you don't want to stutter? Well, they'll think I'm stupid or weak, or I shouldn't have this job, or they don't want to be my friend. Oh, wow. We don't know that they're thinking that, but they could be thinking that. I'm never going to tell someone that they're not going to be thinking that. But since we don't know, is it possible to do this and allow somebody, give somebody permission to think that? Give someone permission to think what they think? And the person can consider that. So that might be one of the counseling strategies we use at that moment. So little by little, the person begins to take some risks, weighing the positives and negatives, the risks, the, the sort of the, the, the benefits and cost and benefits of allowing people to think what they think, allowing themselves to feel feelings, allowing people to look at them, to wonder, allowing themselves to appear in front of others with an identity that they hid. Again, this takes some time. I'm sort of squishing this into like a few sentences, but it takes some time. And then they begin to what we call open stutter. And is this a good time, Sarah, to maybe talk about what open stuttering is? I think so. Oh, that yeah, would be great. Okay, because okay, open stutter. It's also the name of our YouTube channel, Open Stutter, because it is a hallmark benchmark in the process of therapy. It's probably the hardest thing the person will do in the therapy process. And I'll start out by telling, because it's very confusing to people, because it's a lot of people think it means showing stuttering. A lot of people, I, I show my stuttering openly. I'm open stuttering. And it's really not about showing stuttering. It's a concept that I think it may be unique to arts. I'm not sure. But it's not about telling people you're a person who stutters or a stutterer. It's not about allowing people to know it. It's not about showing stuttering. It's none of those things. It's a specific behavior where the person is stuttering on the intended sound with abandon, without control. And imagine how scary that might sound to people listening right now. Um, it's the thing that they tried to hide their entire lives, right? And here we are in therapy encouraging you to do that. And it's something that is never the beginning of therapy. So I think for speech language therapists, it's important for them to know that, no, you don't start out with a client with open stuttering. It's a, it's a, it's a middle of therapy moment. And some people's journeys are years. So it's not unusual for some of my clients to begin open stuttering months and months, even a year into their journey. You know, there's no rush because it's a huge moment. But what it is, is where you're actually putting the stutter where it belongs. So if I say my name is, uh, um, my, um, my name is, um, 
uh, uh, Vivian. I said Vivian fluently at the end of my ins and outs and getting to it. So I ended up reinforcing the notion that I really wanted to say that fluently. But in the meantime, I had all this struggle beforehand. What I want to do is put that stutter on the feared word. My name is Vivian. It could be more wild than that. It could be less wild than that. It is what it is. And so people say, well, what does it sound like when it's open stutter? Does it sound like this? No. You're repeating the first sound intentionally. I can't tell you what to do to open stutter. It's about what you're not doing. It's about letting go of control, letting go of that moment and heading into a tolerance of loss of control. And I compare it to blowing up a balloon and then holding it up in the air and just letting it, let it go, move around the room. And we don't know what's going to happen to it. That is very scary for people, Sarah. So that moment is very, very scary. It represents everything that somebody has been trying not to do. So it starts with, I had one moment of open stuttering this week. And that's a huge celebration. And it may not be another moment for weeks. But believe it or not, as people begin to feel how freeing that is, And as reactivity begins to decrease, because reactivity begins to decrease, the more you do it, the the, the people are open stuttering and they are not reacting as much to it. They're still reacting. You saw a lot of reactivity there. There's tension, not movement there going on. But reactivity really, really drops. And they're in the stage of open stuttering. Okay. Counseling during this time is incredibly important. Sharing this experience with others, being open with family members, gaining your support group, involvement in community, understanding your journey, and most importantly, understanding where you want to do that and where you don't want to do that. And I have a saying, don't be a hero. And when I say that to people, they go, really? I didn't expect you to say Somebody said that to me yesterday. I didn't expect you to say that. And I said, why would you want to experience so much shame and so that you wouldn't want to do this again? In order to, for open stuttering to be effective in your journey, you have to want to do it and celebrate its occurrence. So selecting where you do that is very, very important. And that is the skill of the collaboration between the clinician and the stutterer. That collaboration is so important to figure out where and when and how and who and all those things. Gradually, the client is stepping out a little bit more, taking a little more risk, expanding that comfort zone and doing it in more and more situations. And then all of a sudden they say, what about this open stuttering? Is it always going to sound like this? And I say, what would you like to change? Well, I want more comfort in my stuttering pattern. I want a more efficient communication exchange. Sometimes when I open stutter, it kills my spontaneity because I feel that it stops a group conversation or people will fill in or whatever else people might report. At that point, we have some 
speech change that also goes along with the identity change and the acceptance change. And that is letting go of the control because when represents tension and lack of movement in that stuttering movement. The person is trying to control the way the stutter moves through their body. Ideally, make it quiet, make it little, make it go away faster, make it shorter, make it small. And all of the (laughs) small, small, small. And as all things in stuttering are paradoxical, the more you try to make it small, the bigger it becomes, right? And so paradoxically, allow it to be big. And the idea is the bigger you allow your stuttering to be in that stage of therapy, the smaller it becomes. And it's sort of like fluency. When you stop chasing fluency, it's in your lap, right? When you stop chasing comfort, it's in your lap. And so that's the third stage of what we call speech or motor change in changing the stuttering pattern. By then, the person is also on their way, not only in terms of accepting their identity, but enacting the role of person who stutters in the outside world. In other words, that role enactment, reducing that role conflict. The person is also establishing themselves as a disfluent communicator in many, many contexts and making space for their stuttering and allowing stuttering to be in the conversation. Some of them go beyond acceptance and get to the point of maybe pride. Some are just okay and neutral about their disfluency. So that was my long, quick version of the therapy process. No, that was perfect. No, no, that was perfect. And there were so many times in there, I'm like, wow, you know, sort of thinking in your own head, like, how would I say that? And I learn so many things new every time that we talk or or I listen. And I love hearing you speak about these concepts. I feel like it, it teaches me from a, a stutterer perspective and, and a clinician perspective all in one. And then I think about client examples too. And I'm like, yes, that phrasing would be perfect there and all the things. Yeah. I hope people could hold a thread as I got through the entire process there. I think so for sure. I think so for sure. Well, again, really sending a thank you, Vivian, for all you shared in this episode. And I can't wait for listeners to catch parts three and four of our conversation. Listeners, we will see you next week. It's really exciting to say that rather than next month where we will release part three. And then the following week, we will release part four, the final of this initial mini series within the arts broader series that hopefully will continue. Hope you're having a really nice week and beginning of January. Bye. Bye.